This is a special bonus episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. And so you don't miss regular features like History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is The History Author Show on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker, and many other personal audio outlets. You can also tune us in on many new model car stereos, where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like you listen to any other radio. Of course, today we're not driving a car, but a time machine. And we're traveling back to the days before the American Civil War, when doctors would take their scalpels to fully awake patients the pre-microbial era, when the causes of common diseases remained a mystery, and when oil lamps and flammable clothing combined to engulf a staggering number of people in flames, burning them alive. This was the age of monsters. Yes, monsters. Not the fun version we're seeing for Halloween. These were human beings, so scarred and broken that they often longed for death, They wore masks of skin that they couldn't take off, and so they were called monsters, crippled, misshapen people, people just like us on the inside, but often unable to leave their homes because they were so damaged by disease or injury. These unfortunates lived in the shadows, with no chance of ever feeling the sunlight on their faces, a sentence particularly cruel for women who, in the early half of the 18th century, still relied on a man for their survival. The subject of today's book is the brilliant surgeon who gave these monsters hope and made it his life's work to piece their lives back together. His name was Thomas Dent Mooder. Poet and author Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz tells the story of his amazing medical breakthroughs in Dr. Mooder's Marvels, a true tale of intrigue and innovation at the dawn of modern medicine. Kristen is an award-winning writer and the author of seven books. You can visit her website, aptowitz.com, to learn more about today's book or her others. And you can follow her on Twitter at coaptowitz. That's C-O-A-P-T-O-W-I-C-Z. Okay, now that we're up to speed, let's hop in our time machine. Next stop, the early 1800s and the amazing world of Dr. Mooder's Marvels. I'm on the line with Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, author of Dr. Mooder's Marvels, A True Tale of Intrigue and Innovation at the Dawn of Modern Medicine. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me on the History Author Show. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm really glad because I enjoyed this book so much. It's one of those I usually put in my pile and say, well, I'll read a little bit at a time. Then the next thing you know, it's 2 a.m. And my (laughs) wife is saying, go to bed. Why won't you go to bed? And then because the subject matter appropriately for Halloween, it is a little bit difficult to go right to bed after you've been reading (laughs) your book. But it's excellent. Nonetheless, just maybe don't read it with the lights off always or if you're squeamish. But 
I want to, in all seriousness, set the stage for people. Dr. Mooter comes on the scene. He decides he's going to practice medicine. It's a time when anybody could really sort of declare themselves a doctor. There's not licensing yet. It happens within his lifetime, but it's not yet. You don't have formal training. There's not standardized practicing, even for the few things comparatively that they do know today. So give listeners an idea of just how different, thanks in part to the subject of your book, Dr. Mooter's work, the field of medicine is today compared to his day. Oh, absolutely. It's it's enormously different. I always say that like one of the reasons I was so attracted to the story of Mooter as sort of like a lay person, you know, I was my background's been in poetry and contemporary histories. So I don't have a background in medicine or history. And the reason I sort of dived into and spent years sort of obsessed with this project is because it was kind of like he was like a MacGyver of American medicine, you know. They didn't have electricity. You didn't have a lot of the diagnostic tools that would help a doctor, x-rays, microscopes, germ theory hadn't been proven, so they didn't understand how diseases were spread. So doctors did not have to wash their hands or tools prior to meeting with a patient, and some actively spoke out against doing so. Additionally, obviously, no women doctors at all. I mean, you didn't need a license or a degree to practice medicine. Uh, you could literally just hang a shingle outside your house and start sticking leeches on people and charging them <laughs> money, and that would have been perfectly acceptable. Um, there were medical schools, and Mooter did graduate at the age of 20 from uh, the first ever medical school in America, which is University of Pennsylvania, founded 10 years before our country was founded, so in 1766 by Benjamin Franklin, and then continued to practice medicine in Philadelphia, which in the mid-1800s was sort of the medical Athens of America, where a lot of the great surgeons and great doctors were teaching legions and generations of students who would go on to usher in what we now know and enjoy as modern medicine. And Mooter in particular was really instrumental in teaching some basic principles at a time decades before their effectiveness could be proven by modern medicine, such as germ theory. He was fastidiously clean decades before, you know, uh, germ theory was proven with the modern microscope in the 1890s. He essentially promoted and invented uh, many forms of preoperative and postoperative care. So if you've ever had surgery and gone to a recovery room instead of just getting shoved into a wagon and sent home, you could thank Mooter <laughs> for that. Yeah. And what makes his story sort of unusual is that he was one of America's first and definitely most daring plastic surgeons. So his specialty in particular was working in a demographic in America that they would medically categorize as monsters, uh, people who were so severely deformed or disfigured that there was literally no medical treatment for them. You know, uh, in a time before ether anesthesia, all surgeries were done while people were awake, and they actually paid men to hold the patient down onto the table as you were removing their leg or their appendix. And so because that was the nature of surgery, people rarely sought surgery unless it was life or death. So reconstructive surgery, which is essentially an elective surgery, was not done. And so you would have people who through birth or accident would become horribly, you know, disfigured and would have no course of action until a person like Mooter came into their lives and helped devise entirely brand new types of surgery 
and, you know, in a time before either anesthesia, preoperative care to help make execute those surgeries impeccably. And then postoperative care to make sure the infections didn't kill you. He was a real trailblazer, really specializing on radical surgery on the severely deformed. We still live with his legacies in many ways today, including the Mütter Museum, which listeners may be, that might be the part of Mütter's history that America would be most familiar with, is sort of the cult destination, Philadelphia's Mütter Museum of 19th century medical oddities. And that's where I first uh, heard the name Mütter, and that's the place that got me started on that story 15 years ago. And we're going to be giving away two tickets that I guess your publisher or PR firm, the museum itself, was kind enough to share with us. We're going to be doing that on Facebook through Halloween, ending, of course, at midnight. I'll just ask people to maybe leave a comment here about the book or maybe when they first heard about Dr. Mooder, have been thinking about that and how to involve people more in somebody who's really a special figure because he is forgotten. And you read this and you say he cared so much and he tried so hard. And he fought against all the people of his time that were standing in his way. And those are really compelling people in history. And yet maybe because he didn't leave any heirs and maybe because he didn't he liked sort of this mystery about him. He didn't have that legacy other than the museum. And I admit, even coming from New Jersey, granted, northern Jersey, I always pictured the Muter Museum as sort of a low rent. Ripley's Believe It or Not. And I felt so bad reading this book. I said, wow, this guy really left us an incredible legacy. And I hope that people will get those tickets. And even if you have to buy the tickets, stop in there and see some of the exhibits. And you can probably tell us, what are your favorites? Because you went there, what, you were in the fourth grade, I think? What what are your favorites? I was in the fourth grade when I first went there. I grew up in Philly. And my generation was the first one to which the Motor Museum was really open to the public. It's been around for 150 years and was sort of tacitly open to the public. But the work of Gretchen Warden, who's perhaps the person best associated with the museum, she was a longtime director and curator, and she really made an effort to bring anybody and everybody, including school trips and art trips, and to come in and experience the museum. And I love it. You know, I always tell people that it was the first time I ever experienced like a curiosity-based attraction to science. You know, I think up until then, science seemed to be a bunch of facts that were learned a long time ago that I had to sort of memorize, right? Um, right. I was never really curious about like science in general. Um, and the Mütter Museum, you know, the metaphor I often use is that if you were in a supermarket with your mother and then a woman with a giant horn growing out of her head walks <laughs> into the aisle... Your mother would tell you, look anywhere but at that woman with the horn in her head. Do not look at that woman. We do not stare at those, right. you know, at the woman with the horn in her head. But in the Muna Museum, they say, take this thing that you've been told your entire life not to look at and take a close look. Like these are all human beings. Many times the reasons that these disfigurements or deformities happen were through no fault of their own. And ask questions like, how does this happen? Does it happen today? What do we do today to treat it? What did they do back then to treat it? Was it successful? What have we learned? And so to wander around a museum with so many evocative artifacts and just sort of ask questions was something that I'd never done before. And and it's an experience I tried to repeat in the book. The book has over 80 illustrations sort of woven throughout the text. The thought was to sort of evoke a 19th century medical textbook because I think they're gorgeous. And, uh, you know, and they have very minimal descriptions because I kind of wanted people to read the book and then encounter the image at the right time. So hopefully if you flip through the book at a store, you're provoked to thinking like, wait, how does this happen? How is this treated? And the book would seek to answer that. When I was a kid, I really liked the soap lady, the woman whose body was turned into soap. 
I like Madame Dimanche, the woman with the horn from her head. But as I've grown older, I really love those doctors who, like Mütter, were passionate about one aspect of science and worked their whole lives to unlock that aspect of science for them. So the Hurdle Skull Collection, which is a collection of 100-plus skulls from all over the world that a doctor collected to disprove phrenology, the concept that you could understand a person's moral character through the bumps on their skull. Then there's the Chevalier Jackson collection of things that he retrieved from people's throats. He was a doctor who specialized in retrieving things from people's throats and kept very detailed <laughs> logs of everyone who came in and would remove things for free provided he could keep the object. So he's an unusual person. There's a really wonderful book about him called Swallow by the writer um, Mary Capello. So check that out if you're interested in that story. But just everything about the museum, they do a wonderful job. I'm really happy that we're giving away tickets because they just orient themselves into the world in a way that really provokes your curiosity and in doing so helps you gain a deeper understanding of our world and our history and how lucky we are today. But one of the, my favorite exhibitions ever is actually up right now at the museum. Um, it's about Grimm's fairy tales. So we all know Grimm's fairy tales and, and they talk about how some of the deformed figures in those stories come from a medical background of, of being problems that actually occurred back in that time period. Why would witches have hooked noses? And why would you cut off toes to fit into a glass slipper? And like how all of those were actually tied to the medical conditions of that time period, many of which we don't have today. So just that angle, you know, just like exploring the world and opening your eyes to like things you didn't realize were attached to medicine is a real gift of that museum. And you look at those images you said in the book, I, when I was reading it, I was going to bring those up to you and say, I felt reading it that even if I was someone who couldn't read English, I would get something out of this book. You can't look upon those people who were doing this sort of for Halloween. And I thought, even though they're obviously all very long dead, you feel like you want to treat them with respect because they suffered so much. And I thought this is probably the only day of the year that they could leave the house because people would think that it was makeup because that's how hideously deformed right. they were. They couldn't swallow. They couldn't blink. I mean, this was a life of constant suffering. And here's a man who has connections. He's certainly personable. He could have put his talents to anything. He's ambidextrous, which, of course, helps him in surgery in a time that they're emphasizing speed because nobody wants to lay there on that table. <laughs> While they're awake, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no way. And if you look at the cover, I wanted to also give a shout out to Stephen Breda, who's your graphic artist there that put the cover together, because I read a lot of books, as you imagine, on the subway, on the bus. And this book, <laughs> Dr. Mooder's Marvels, got so many looks. And not looks of horror or anything. Granted, there's a skull in there, but just real curiosity from people. And I was writing down that question to ask you when we talked. And sure enough, my mail guy came and brought me another two books and your book was sitting there. And so he picks up Dr. Mooder's Marvels and he says, wow, and starts flipping through it. And I think in this age where we don't necessarily go to bookstores to see a book, take right. a minute next time you're there and say, gee, what was that what was that book again? The one with the, the thing from Philadelphia, Dr. Mooder's Marvels. That's it. Then pick it up and flip through it. And I know it's going to make it into your cart because that's fascinating. And you feel for those people and we can't help them. But we know that here's this 
really talented man, Dr. Mooter, who did make the effort to. And that's one reason he collected all these specimens. It wasn't to be like Ripley, where here's a man with a horn and let's put him in there and just all gawk at him or the elephant man's skeleton sitting in the corner. You didn't have pictures when he's teaching medicine or when he's trying to cover these problems. So you needed these artifacts to know what you were looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the greatest misconceptions about Mooter was that he must have been some sort of weird sadist to collect all these body parts of human beings and like keep them for himself. And when in reality, he was this huge humanist and dealt with a population that at his time period was largely ignored by medicine. One of the more compelling things I found in my research was, you know, the severely deformed women in particular, I found letter after letter after letter from those women. They were severely burned, which was a very common deformity in that time period when you wore flammable clothing that was very long and constrictive and worked in a kitchen with open flames. They would say, you know, I would rather die on your surgical table than live one more day looking like I do. So, you know, he really worked with a population who was desperate and had no other option and then really succeeded in being able to provide them with a light, bring back their humanity, literally, if you consider that they were called monsters. Yeah, these collections were rescued often, you know, from sideshows, from bar rooms, from places where they were being gawked at by the general public and brought back into a field of medicine and used to teach. You know, he was a professor at Jefferson for 15 years and he would show his students so that they would be prepared for it, but also to challenge himself to say, if this person, this conjoined infant came into my office, what could I have suggested that could have helped them to live longer? to sort of understand how lucky we are to be living in an age where so many of those deformities don't really occur in our world. People always say, well, what's the Mütter Museum still relevant? And it's actually really relevant. You know, many of the diseases and disfigurements you see in the museum, I mean, some are going to be random, horrible twists of fate for people, but many of them were nutritional-based. Many of them did not have early intervention, um, and so they were allowed to progress to a terrible state. In a time before antibiotics, infections could really cause terrible disfigurements, especially in the soft tissue of the nose and ears. You also had lack of labor law that would allow for gruesome accidental workplace deformities. Uh, Fossey Jaw, in my book, being a fantastic example of that. And luckily, you know, we've resolved many of these issues. You know, we prenatal vitamins knocks out so many deformities that happen at birth. But those conditions still exist in the third world. You know, you have third world countries that still don't have proper sanitation, don't have clean water, don't have access to doctors to do early intervention, don't have labor laws. And so, you know, you have diseases and disfigurements that were running rampant in Philadelphia in the early 1800s that are running rampant in those countries right now. And the doctors that are treating those cases will come to the Mütter Museum and examine our artifacts, read our literature to better understand how to tackle that problem in today's society. So even today, we still are, not just historically, but current medicine, a very relevant institution. And it's amazing to think that it's such a jewel in the uh, crown of American medicine. And it was started by this man who, you know, died when he was in his mid-40s, 150 years ago, you know. I'm so grateful to Mütter and feel so honored that I am the one who was able to bring his story back into the spotlight where I really believe it deserves to be. And thank you again for the compliments on the book itself. They did a wonderful job. 
Penguin on putting the book together. The cover is by Dan Winters, who's a very famous photographer. He often did my author photo where I'm holding a skull in my hand. And then the inside of the book, again, was designed to look like a 19th century medical textbook. So you'll see a lot of uh, engravings and a lot of speeches that are excerpted on like filigreed paper and just really beautiful evocative images that are embedded within the text so that they can provoke you at the moment of the story where they'd be most effective. And I worked a lot with the designers and and could not be any prouder of how the book is as a piece of art, an object art. And I think that like a mooder would have loved it because he was obviously a very vain man. (laughs) So, you know, I think that I I want mooder to know that it's, you know, appropriately fancy as well. (laughs) Yeah. And it wasn't easy to be so uh, clean looking. There's that picture of him that, of course, you have in Dr. Mooder's Marvels. And he's, they always said a dandy back then, but he just looks very stately. There's that bust, of course, also a picture yeah. in Dr. Mooder's Marvels. He's a good looking guy and you think he could have really done anything. And he's living really amidst this squalor and he goes to Philadelphia to help people. And it's a time when Philadelphia, they have the infected district. I mean, here in Manhattan, they had the lung block. You know, the infected district, it sounds like something out of World War Z, but it's an actual place that people will be stuck living. They would have those penny dinners for basically just scraps that people threw in the garbage. And I think another reason it's important to have the Mooder Museum is it reminds us not to romanticize everything about the past as much as we might love it. We watch the movie, or if you have, I was trapped on a bus once watching it, Kate and Leopold, not that Meg Ryan and Hugh Jackman aren't fabulous actors, but uh, it wasn't a movie I would ordinarily watch. And I'm thinking she would be dead from six diseases before their first dance because we don't need to get vaccinated for things anymore. Like smallpox, we don't have a yellow fever season the way they did. Imagine every year in Philadelphia looking around your classroom, you're saying being a a fourth grade girl. Imagine looking around and saying, well, 25% of my classmates are going to be dead by the time this year rolls around or this time rolls around next year. You know, don't loan anybody any money, needless to say, because you (laughs) might not get it back. It's just, he had to go. And women in particular, you know, women, women in particular and people of color in particular, my background prior to writing this book was in the poetry world, uh, slam poetry in particular, and I wrote a contemporary history of, of uh, the poetry slam words in your face for soft skull press. And, you know, that's given me, you know, it emboldened me even further to understand the importance of representation in all things, you know, to make sure that you're thinking about the full spectrum of humanity when you present any sort of project, whether it's artistic or legislative. And, you know, I know as a lifelong lover of nonfiction, that couldn't help but think whenever I'd read a book, oh, I wonder who I would be in this story. You know, I wonder what my life would be like if I lived in this time period in the world of working class girls is not terribly represented in history books. And in my book, I wanted to make sure that as many people as possible could see themselves reflected. And Mooder, for sure, had great suffering in his life. You know, his entire family died before he was eight. He was ill constantly. He faced tremendous resistance from his community for ideas that we all know now are correct. And uh, and then died at a very young age. So that's that's not like an easy life to live. But by no means was it as bad as being a slave. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah, he comes from that. Yeah. You know, and the treatment that he received and the respect he received as a well-to-do doctor, a white man, was going to be a lot better than, you know, women of that time period, working class period of that time period. And I, I wanted to make sure that we put him in a context 
for though he suffers, we understand, man, this was also a world of suffering, you know? Yeah. You know, Fosse Jaw, which I mentioned earlier, when I was looking into the time period and thought, who would I have been, right? I grew up in Philly. So if I grew up a working class girl in Philly, what would I have been doing? And that's where I came across Fosse Jaw, which was this horrible deformity that happened to girls in matchstick factories who had to, like, lick their fingers a lot in these dark factory settings because they didn't have electric lighting. And obviously, you can't really have open flame too much when you're dealing with the dangerous chemicals of matchsticks. They started to get these swollen gums and painful toothaches, and then their entire cheeks would open up into these giant wounds that would go all the way down to the bone. And because of the chemicals they were ingesting, as if like having totally exposed jawbone and teeth wasn't bad enough, their uh, exposed jawbones now glowed greenish white in the dark. And again, this little condition was so common, it had a nickname, which was Fossil yeah. Jaw. So the idea that like, you know, my neighborhood where I grew up could have had Fossy Jaw girls, you know, and you'd be like, oh, my sister got Fossy Jaw, like, that's a shame, like, she's going to die, you know, just was a common place, kind of gives you insight into what that world was like. And you're right about, you know, people tend to look at the past as sort of romanticize it. And for sure, as a woman, I would never want to live in any time period other than now. And I'm sure that also goes for people of color. But, you know, it makes you appreciate how far we've come. And also, I hope, inspires people to think about how much farther we can go and the constant improvement. Because a lot of the debates that we had back then, you know, some of them still echo today. I mean, one of the things I covered in the book, the main sort of antagonist is Charles Miggs, who's this gynecologist who taught generations of doctors that women's heads were too small for intellect, but just the right size for love. And wasn't a peer-reviewed study, I don't think. (laughs) Well, it's it's funny, like I was in Portland recently and I said, uh, you know, one of the things that he taught his students was, uh, you know, he didn't believe in pain management for laboring women, you know, he didn't believe that you should help a woman feel less pain during labor at all, because the Bible says, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and he thought it was against God's will to make women suffer less during labor, so he instructed his students to just leave the room and read a newspaper until birth was eminent and sort of ignore the screaming and wailing of the women. And everyone, of course, was really appalled. And I leaned over and said, you know, thank God that doesn't happen anymore because by no means is women's health dictated by the Bible anymore. Am I right, ladies? And like, you know, all the women laughed this knowing laugh. And I was like, you know, thank God I'm in Portland because that joke does not go so well in other parts of the country. But to some extent, you know, like women's health, you know, is still this thing that we don't have a full voice in. You know, we still have to fight about what we deserve, the steps we need to take to make sure we know what we're doing with our own bodies. Like these things that were so, you know, when you look at it at a different angle from the 1800s seems so terrible. When you look at it at day standard, it's still a debate we're having. And that goes across the board. Many of those, obviously the difference between healthcare between the wealthy and the poor and the working class is still a problem here in America. And it's interesting to see how far we've come, but also how far we still need to go. Well, and I think one thing, because I always try to avoid the urge to condescend or to say, my gosh, what were they thinking? As David McCullough says, people back then didn't know that they were living back then. And I think because they really couldn't do anything about the pain, they they could make a more of an effort like, of course, Mooter going in there, as you talk about in Dr. Mooter's Marvels, telling the, the patient what was coming, massaging their faces, t- just touching them and becoming more of a friend for them. But I can see where if you didn't 
have any power to relieve pain, you might take some comfort in the idea that, well, this is just part of it because you had to hear screaming and misery and be cutting into awake, fully awake human beings. There's a part of your book you mentioned, I think one of the hospitals in Paris where Dr. Mutter goes a few times, but initially just to learn and then it returns at the end of his life. And they would have something like, what was it, 600,000 francs or 60,000 francs, uh, just a wine bill, because they would give yeah. you a glass of wine, of course, it being France. Right, but th- yeah. th- this is all that they could do for you. And I think, especially talking about the angle of women, you said wanting to not be alive any other time. These deformities were horrible, particularly for women. I mentioned that I hit page 147 of your book and I put down Dr. Mooder's Marbles and I went and checked all the batteries in my smoke detectors because <laughs> I was I, re- <laughs> I was yeah. reading about these women with the billowy clothing and again, looks lovely on Meg Ryan, but if she gets too close to a candle, guess yep. what? She's going up and she's going to look like a melted candle, the poor thing. Right. And that's how these women, when you see the illustrations in your book, that's physically, how they look, not able to turn your head, not able to blink from the time you're five to the time you're 30, if you're fortunate enough to be able to get into Dr. Mooter's operating table. And he develops the Mooter flap. I wanted you to mention that too, as far as, you know, because you were, the reason I say this about women is your life is dependent on a man at this point, either your father or you're married. You don't have the same options that you would have today where you'd think it'd be horrible enough to be burned and scarred. But not only is there no medical treatment for these women at this time, but they really have no options. Once their family dies, you talk about them being just terrified. What's going to become of me? I'm going to end up in a freak show or something. And he offers them relief. He cares enough to offer relief. And some of these women have never even been taken out of their house since the accident because it's considered a shame for right. their family to have them. They're embarrassed. Right, to have a monster in the family and to risk it for the other other siblings, right? It would be harder to marry off if you knew you might be at risk of having to take this monster into your house when the parents die. So it was a very complicated time period. And, you know, I tried my best to really orient people towards the 19th century so that they can have sympathy towards why things were so confusing back then. I mean, so many of the diagnostic tools and treatments that would be so helpful were just 50 years away, but it was a long 50 years. One of the things that I found most fascinating during my research was also the fight for ether anesthesia. I assumed prior to doing the research that once ether anesthesia was discovered as a way to have pain-free surgery with the person happily rendered unconscious, you know, the medical community would embrace it. I had no idea the fight that lay ahead of people. And to sort of understand that from a 19th century context, that it was partially because of lack of standardized medicine, so the sorts of drugs were very volatile and dangerous and confusing to use, the fact that doctors were used to their entire careers performing surgery on awake people and the ways that they learned from that and, you know, felt secure in that. And then also that germ theory proved to be so important that how shocking was it to find out that the death rates for people who were under ether for surgery were the exact same rate as people who were screaming and thrashing on a table. All of these things, you know, were just so shocking to read when you understand them from a historical perspective. You get a better understanding of how much stuff just needs to click into place. It just makes me grateful for those pioneers who who sullied forth and fought for what they believed in just in their gut from using scientific progress. One of my favorite quotes in the book is, 
uh, Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who when they finally had the modern microscope come and prove that his theory of contagion when it comes to childhood fever was correct, he said, oh, I knew that and I didn't need your army of microbes to prove me right, you know? Just yeah. using your brain and observation and being a, cr- a critical thinker could really bring your practice to a level in which people who just sort of didn't do the, that work couldn't achieve. Luder was so ahead of his time. And I think partially it had to do with the fact that he was brilliant, but also part of it, part of it had to be because that he was a patient himself. And I think he knew the difference between a clean doctor and a dirty doctor and being prepared for medical procedure and being surprised by it and, you know, having someone desensitize you versus someone just shock you with the pain of it. And he used that to the advantage of his generations of patients. It's amazing. I wish that Mütter was a doctor I could have today because it's not so much his skill, which was incredible, but his humanist, patient-centric philosophy that I think resonates so strongly, that he really believed that patients were humans who were suffering and not just problems he needed to solve, which I feel like a lot of patients today feel that feeling from their doctors. They don't really seem to care, you know, about your suffering as much as finding the problem and fixing it. It can leave you a little cold towards the medical profession if that's your main experience. My guest is author Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, and you can find her online at aptowitz.com. She is, of course, as you've heard, the author of Dr. Mooter's Marvels, a true tale of intrigue and innovation at the dawn of modern medicine. And as you may know, I usually stop earlier than this to do the plug, but I was having so much fun here that I I guess (laughs) we'll go a little bit over the time. But no, it's a fantastic book. Publishers Weekly wrote in its starred review of Dr. Mütter's Marvels, quote, Aptowitz shows Mütter, beloved by his students, evolving from a mischievous, impatient young doctor to an increasingly spiritual man beset by premature illness. And her writing is as full of life as her subject, unquote. Now, full of life, I thought, that's a perfect description. And then I thought, wait, he's been dead for a century and a half. And yet (laughs) you really brought him to life there. You talk about these lavish parties that he had, his late night with students. He's drinking beer. He's having fresh oysters. It's laughing loudly. It's a night that we can picture having now. Talk about how it would be to be his student compared to Dr. Miggs, who, as you said, kind of his antagonist. He's bringing in one sheep after another, right, and giving them ether until they're right. dead. And then when saying, see, see, this is horrible. And then they're going to – it was just beautifully written in the book. And you you say, then there comes, of course, that little ba, and the sheep wakes up and sort of stumbles off the table. <laughs> but tell me what it would have been like to be a student of Dr. Mooter. Well, then, you know, you sort of have to understand what 19th century medicine was like, medical school. Back then, it was just essentially you bought a ticket to a lecture series, and you would go and see a doctor speak from a pulpit, and frequently they did not have any illustrations. You know, you kind of just had to imagine it in your head. He would ask no questions, nor would he receive any questions. And uh, at the end of an hour-long lecture, he would get off the lectern, and that's the last you would see of him until the next week when he gives his new lecture, and you would, at the end of a cycle, be offered the ability to 
take a test to see if you've learned what you needed to learn. And frequently you took two cycles of lectures where those lectures stayed absolutely identical for you to really gain the understanding you need to pass the test. Mooter, on the other hand, was a hugely engaging professor. He taught at Jefferson Medical College, which was the first medical school in the United States to have surgical and uh, medical theaters where students could see their professor act as a doctor and interact with actual patients, do diagnoses, prognoses, do question the patient, examine the patient, have surgeries on the patient. They also had an anatomy class where they used cadavers so you could actually see how the body works and how all the organs function and the muscular system in a way that even if you saw a very detailed diagram in a book that you bought doesn't have the same effect. And Mütter worked with very extreme cases, so his students were given to see really radical surgeries, cutting-edge surgeries that Mütter himself was actively inventing. You know, Mütter uh, was the first one to bring, uh, you know, sort of a British style of professorship, which was quizzing, where you would ask the students questions and make sure they were understanding and welcome questions from students um, in case they, you know, you were going too fast or they didn't quite catch something. So it was a much more interactive, engaging experience. And Mütter would know all their names, obviously dressed fastidiously. So he was swanning through the streets of Philadelphia in blue and pink silks while the rest of the professors were in these sort of dour blacks and browns and then developed real relationships with his students. He would frequently bring his favorites with him to Paris and to Europe so that they could be exposed to the same inspirations that Mütter was exposed to. He learned about plastic surgery in Paris when he was freshly graduated from Penn, and that altered the entire course of his life. And you see at the end of the book, I have a whole chapter that explores what happened to some of the students that he had taught and the different ways that he inspired them to act in bold ways in medicine, things like uh, the Chilpi Hospital Philadelphia was directly inspired by Mütter taking a student with him to Europe and exposing him to European medicine. So he was an amazing, amazing professor and spoke at the end of his life when he knew he was dying. Uh, you know, he could have stayed in Paris and enjoyed the life of leisure that Paris offered him. They adored him in Europe in a way they never accepted him here in America. But he knew he wanted to go back and make sure that his work continued and that his patients Needs were met, even if he were dead, because at that point he was known as sort of this wonder kind, the only person who could perform these surgeries, and he realized while that legacy certainly made his ego feel good, didn't help those patients when he died, and no one else thought they could do those surgeries. But he talked about how giving up that teaching position because of illness was like rending his own arm. You know, that's how powerfully he felt about being able to influence generations of doctors. You know, his legacy continues to live on, not only through the work that he did, but through that generation of doctors whose innovations we still benefit from today. It is inspirational, his life and also that death that you're talking about, to see him going down and he returns to his faith. He sort of been so focused, I guess, on his career. He stops going to church. And I always find that inspiring. I wonder what people look at me in my life and will say, well, gee, he started screaming and shaking his fist at heaven and going, come on, I need another hour. I mean, look, I'm saving all these people. Can I have another 10 years, you know, another day? And instead right. he says, 
this is a blessing because now I can make sure there's people whose hands will take over for mine because he's doing the surgery right and he's working and and they're marveling at him and watching him do it. And that's not really teaching. And I think that's something probably a lot of people can relate to. And one final thing I wanted to mention because we're talking about this relative to Halloween is not only keep your black cats inside, of course, because there are some people who really are ghoulish this time of year and do things to them. But the reason I mention animals is, as I said to you, that I have an animal science background. And as I was listening to some of your other interviews and thoughts, you said we all naturally identify with the patient on the table. You know, you walk into this surgery room, there's a couple of big burly guys there. They say, this is your last chance. Do you want your leg cut off? Right. Or do you want this surgery? And once you say yes, no matter how much you beg, you know, picture that scene in Young Frankenstein, right? When he, come on, let me out. Don't you know a joke? And he's trying to bang it on the door, you know, right. let me out, let me out. Let me out. Let me out of here. Get me the hell out of here. What's the matter with you people? I was joking. Don't you know a joke when you hear one? <laughs> That was really what it was like. So we identify with that person. And you talked about identifying with the doctor or at least people giving them a thought. Somebody like Dr. Mooder, who he's looking these people in the eye, maybe it's the first time in their lives or maybe the first time since their accident. And I related it to animals. The reason I bring up cats and dogs in veterinary medicine is one of the things people do say often is it's hard to be a veterinarian because You can't ask them how they feel. You can't say, this is going to hurt for just a minute, but I'm only trying to take some blood because I want to test it. And for me as a man, often animals will be abused by a man. And so if they see any man, they won't want you anywhere near them. And I remember so much that feeling of you're coming into work. This is your job. You just want to help. And yet you're treated with such disdain or you're reacted to. They don't really treat you anyway, but and, and you can't do your job because they're so fearful of you. And I thought anybody who's maybe tried to pill their cat or anybody who's held their cat in the, in the, right. on the exam table while the doctor took blood or anything like that, and you're trying just to communicate that, that sort of has to be some maybe of the feeling here dealing with these human beings where you're really traumatized. And I think that's why maybe in a different way they did take solace in these things like, oh, well, it's just going to be painful here. It says right here in the Bible. So let's not let's not worry right, about it. Yeah. Maybe people just felt No, pain is part of surgery. And even in, uh, I'm not particularly old, I'm in my mid-40s, but there were still veterinarians who would say they believed that pain was important for animals. Pain medication for animals is relatively new because they thought, well, if you had a broken leg, the I believe they called it uh, like a pain cast, you know, like an invisible cast because you wouldn't move it because it was broken. So you wouldn't want to give an animal pain medication because they might move around. And so I, right. I think in Dr. Mooder's Marvels, you have so many layers. And the final thought that I wanted to leave you with and ask you if you think is fair about you was you talked today, you talked other times about what you would do back then. And as a poet, I thought people often think, well, what would you do today, right? Greeting cards, what would Beethoven do? Would he be writing jingles for Coca-Cola? But this is exactly what you would be doing because it's still words and it's such a beautifully written book and you bring him to life. And now having gotten to know him through your book, I just wanted to thank you for it and ask you if there's any... (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's sincere. I know people think I just yeah, gushed no, over the books. I but... appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> well, people send me some books and I don't read them. So unless I really love them, <laughs> trying to jump this in here for no, Halloween. I'm sure you read it on the subway. That's like a long time New Yorker's dream. Like if you're ever a writer in New York, just know all they want to do is accidentally stumble upon someone in the subway reading your book. Yeah. So I'm thrilled to know that you were doing that and that people <laughs> saw you reading my book. So yep. thank you for that. D to the A train. It was really lovely. And I want to thank you again. Dr. Mooter's Marvels. Thank you so much, Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, for writing the book, but also for joining me. And I can tell that Dr. Mooter certainly pumping his arm in happiness here. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure someday he'll have a beer for you waiting because you're a very <laughs> good so. student, even if you never sat in this classroom. Well, thank you. Again, the book is Dr. Mooter's Marvels, a true tale of intrigue and innovation at the dawn of modern medicine. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. We get one of those penny lunches from the infected district every time you do. I once again want to thank Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz for joining us and for bringing to life the sort of historical figure I personally love, one who's forgotten but who deserves to be remembered. Remember to check out aptowitz.com and follow CO Aptowitz for more on this amazing figure. You can find a lot of stuff on the Mooter Museum there, and I do hope you'll visit. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean. Oh, and don't forget, if you're listening to this before midnight on Halloween, October 31st, you can comment on that Facebook post and win two tickets to the Mooter Museum absolutely free. What better way to spend a day than looking back into the past with some real incredible and unique artifacts? Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever it is you're listening. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Thanks so much for listening, and happy Halloween! We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east, sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.